Okay, well, as I said before, we've come to the end of this series, and Jesus ends this Sermon on the Mount with a very famous story that I'm sure many non-Christians probably know about as well. But I wonder, did you notice the words that come right after the end of what Jesus says? The words that Matthew records in verses 28 and 29. I'll read those again. He says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. And throughout history, there's been a lot of response and reaction to the Sermon on the Mount, mainly positive, but I'm sure we'll know of many other religions, even people who don't follow any religion, think that the Sermon on the Mount is full of some good moral ideas, things that we should put into practice in our lives. We might even find today in society, people will be very happy to read things that say, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Don't judge, or you will be judged. And everything you do, do to others as you'd have them do to you. There there seem to be things that we adapt to. Good principles, living a good life, helping others, keeping out of trouble. It's all good stuff. But was that what Jesus intended? Was that what he was trying to get across? Just some good moral code for how to live your life. Many were amazed at his teaching, but I wonder how many stopped and then submitted their lives to the Lord Jesus. People want to live good lives, but how many will take the words of Jesus seriously when he talks about angry words, for example, or the lust of our eyes, or his definition of adultery? Many are happy to believe in God, but as we saw last week, when Jesus said there's only one way to heaven, people are prepared to accept that. John Stott says in his introduction to his commentary on this sermon, he says, The Sermon on the Mount is the best known part of all the teaching of Jesus, but arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. We can be very impressed with what Jesus says. You could even argue that many of the laws we have in Britain are shaped and influenced by biblical values and the teachings of Jesus. But when he says that there's one way and his way, how will people respond? We can found our laws on good moral principles, but do they shape do this shape the way people live their life today? Or has a largely rejection, a big rejection of Jesus in today's society meant, as we've seen in recent years, the laws that we have are beginning to change, beginning to step away from biblical principles. Crowds were amazed when they heard Jesus teach, not just because he was nice, but because this man had authority. He didn't say, let me tell you about a possible way of life. He didn't give us one truth among many. He didn't point to what other people say. He didn't refer to any external religious texts. He didn't ask, what do you think? He said, this is the way. This is truth. If you think back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about what they have been taught by their teachers. He says, you have heard this. 
about murder and adultery and things. But then he says, but, but I tell you. Last week we heard Jesus say these words that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father in heaven. So here we have powerful words, exclusive claims and instructions that this, this man, Jesus, is telling But why should we listen to him? Who is this man that we should take him seriously? Well, as we come to the very end of this sermon and take a look at this parable here, I I hope that we will see that we should not only listen to what Jesus has to say, but that we will do what he says, put into practice these things. So firstly, Jesus is telling us that we need to build our lives on him. If you've been here for any of these sermons the last few weeks or even over the last couple of years, I hope you've noticed that although there are some good moral ideals, principles which are good for life, the main point that Jesus has been trying to get across is that just obeying the law, living self-righteously, is not how you get into heaven. Obeying the law is not the requirement for heaven as many of the people believed. But the life that you live, living out the Sermon on the Mount, is the response to what it is already being in the kingdom of heaven. And of course that is through faith in Jesus. Many people listened and many people were amazed at his teaching, but not everyone liked it. Jesus got under the skin, didn't he, a little bit. Hypocrites, he would call the religious leaders. Many believed that kingdom membership was due to obeying the law and being good, ticking the boxes, following things of the Old Testament. And we saw that Jesus was mainly contrasting the character and the behaviour of those who were living self-righteously with those who deny any righteousness, trusting in Christ. And I think this is what Jesus means when he talks about the foundation, building on the foundations Either we build on our own righteousness or we build on Christ's righteousness. So let's read through this parable again and think a bit about what Jesus is saying with this metaphor. So verse 24 again. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. And then he goes on and says, the one who didn't build on the rock but on the sand is foolish, because when the weather comes, it falls with a crash. Now, we don't have to be architects and engineers to know that if you build on sand, it's not a good idea. And building a rock is the best foundation for your house or whatever you're building. I was reading... Um, the British Building Trade Company's website, and they have this definition of foundation. It says, foundation is the structure that transfers load to the underlying material, which could be soil, rock, or even seabed. The foundation holds the structure up so it won't sink into the ground. The foundation also holds the structure down to keep it from being blown away by the elements. The foundation of your house must be water-resistant. 
must be able to resist fungus and insect infestation, natural gases, and of course the pressure of the soil that holds the house down. Without a sound foundation, your house could literally sink to the ground or be blown away. I thought that was quite apt (laughs) description. And uh, Jesus obviously knows what he's talking about when he thinks of foundations. Maybe you've heard stories of bad foundations and what it's done to buildings. I guess most famously the Leaning Tower of Pisa is part of that. Not great foundations, but on half soft ground, half hard ground. Doesn't quite work. Foundations are important for building any structure. And Jesus wants to tell us that foundations of your life are important. Of course, even more important. That is, what you believe in, how you view the world, how you live your life will, of course, affect the type of life you live. But it also will affect what happens when the weather, the elements come knocking. And I wonder whether, as Jesus spoke this little parable, he had some verses in the Old Testament in mind. The book of Proverbs is great for lessons for life. And Proverbs 10 says, When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. Proverbs 14, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And I wonder if he's using, referring to those passages because the storm that he talked about, the rain and the wind that comes against the house, is God's final judgment. And we'll get to that in a minute. And because the God's judgment one day will come upon everybody, Jesus is warning us, warning his listeners and us today, that we need to build our lives, build our houses on the right foundation, the right base. And for Jesus, that means building our lives on him. Our lives should be shaped by who he is, what he has done. And Jesus says there is no better foundation than him. Now again, this is another huge claim, a seemingly arrogant demand that he has. Follow me or else. Maybe you ask, or perhaps your friends, your family will ask, what is it about this man Jesus, that who he is, what he's done, that I should build my life upon him? Why is it, as we saw last week, that it's his way or no way? I think it would be good for us to take some time to answer that question. Why is it that here we have Jesus making these exclusive claims Is he trustworthy? Can I, should I give my life to him? Why is it that he is the only way? Well, of course, it's not like he wants the monopoly of all the different ways of of getting to heaven. It's the fact that he is the only way of getting to heaven. And I want to look at kind of two things about Jesus that help us see that. The exclusivity of Jesus in his person, that is, in who he is. And then in his work, that is, in what he's done. And see that these are unique. And no one else in history of the world is like him. 
And then when we see who Jesus is and what he's done for us, we'll see that he is the only way. And of course, we could take you to many, many passages in the Bible that can tell us about who Jesus is and what he's done. But I thought it would be good to stick in Matthew. And although the Sermon on the Mount is at chapter 7, 5, 6, and 7, we're only in the first quarter of the Gospel. But I think even in the first chapter, we get a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Think back to Matthew chapter 1. You can turn to it if you want. Matthew chapter 1, from verse 18, we have Joseph. And he's dreaming. He dreams and an angel appears to him. Remember? He's heard that Mary, his fiancée, is pregnant. He's distraught. He's going to quietly divorce her. But the angel says, wait. The angel says, the baby in Mary's womb has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you are to call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. The angel says to Joseph that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. This is Isaiah coming true. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. That is God with us. And so you can imagine Joseph wakes up from his dream and he's got lots of questions, I'm sure. But one thing he knows now is that this baby in his fiancée's womb is is a real baby, and yet it's conceived not from another man, but of God through the Holy Spirit. This baby, born as a human, but yet not born in the line descended from humans, and so therefore not affected by sin, a sinless human baby. Who is this man? He is the sinless Son of God. He is the one who is approved of by God himself. Remember chapter 3, his baptism, God speaks, this is my son whom I love. His sinless life is demonstrated for us in the desert in chapter 4, where he's tempted by Satan, yet does not fall. That is who he is, and then ultimately he will go on to do the great work of saving people from their sins. He is the unique Man, the God-man, perfect in every way. Tempted and yet did not sin. Anybody else like to claim anything like that? He is the unique son of God. He is the only one, therefore, who can achieve salvation. He's the only one who can help people enter to the kingdom of heaven. And that is by what he has done. The Bible tells us, doesn't it, I'm sure we all know, that for humans to survive that judgment day, to survive that storm that comes, justice, punishment for sin, has to be dealt with somehow. Eternal life has to be won by satisfying the wrath of God. But the problem is that only a man can do that. Only a man can die because it is a man's punishment. But yet only God has the power to be able to bear that judgment. Therefore, it requires a God-man to stand in the place of sinners. And that is what we have in Jesus. And Jesus knew it. He grew up and he says himself, I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. 
Paul tells us so, so wonderfully that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has made a way, the only one who can make the only way, that we can be right with God through the cross. And so is he worth trusting? Is he worth our allegiance? Is he worth us giving our lives to? Who else? Who else could we go to? How else can we be saved if it is not through the God-man Jesus and his death and resurrection? As I drive along the road, I often listen to Five Live, because I'm a big sports fan. But it's not always about sport, and often they have phone-ins and they have guests come on the, on the show. And sometimes in the middle of the day, they have people coming to tell their life stories. And they're always inspiring, they're always good news stories, often people who've suffered in a particular way, suffered loss, suffered illness, um, in different circumstances. And the stories about how they've turned their life around and they've achieved great things in their life. You see how they've helped themselves to do good things and people have climbed great mountains when they've been, when they've been ill. They've done sponsored runs to raise money for the, the charity that, due to their lost family member. And it's all amazing. It's moving stories. And they're good not to be mocked. And yet it's not good enough. The good self-help lifestyle tips that we get they're not going to withstand the final judgment. All teachings, all philosophies of life, all worldviews that we can have, as we saw last week, they're on that broad, wide road that only leads to, to destruction. That is why Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. He built his house on a rock. It's wise to build your house on a rock. (laughs) It's even wiser to build your life on Jesus Christ. Because there is a storm coming. One day Jesus will return. One day we will face him as our judge. And he is the only one who can get us through. Let's build our lives on Jesus Christ. Build on Jesus Christ so that, secondly, so that in him we will withstand the storm that's coming. Jesus goes on. He says, a wise man builds his house on a rock so that when the rains come and the streams rise and the wind beats against the house, the one on the rock stands, the one on the sand will crash. Building a life on Jesus is the one that will get us through the storm. Why? as we've already said, God's standard of righteousness, the requirement to be with him, is perfection. Remember he said in chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you have no hope. And none of us are in any way able to achieve that righteousness. In fact, it's not even about how we can achieve, because we're in a broken relationship with God because of our sin. If we were to stand before God on Judgment Day and we were to present to him our own righteousness, it would just be blown away. The wind and the rain of God's wrath would just 
get rid of it. Our sin is too great. Even our good works are tainted with sin and selfishness. Our sin problem can't be mended by good works. It can't be mended by putting a plaster on the problem. There needs a complete heart transplant. It needs someone who has built a house already, a house that is strong and perfect, that's on the best foundation, a house that, despite whatever violent storm and wind and rain come crashing against it, the house will not fall. And of course, that's what happened at the cross. Jesus bears the storm of justice, the storm of judgment of God's wrath as he dies. As he stands in our place and we trust in his death, then we are safe, we are secure. We're sheltered, if you like, from the storm. Through our faith in him, it means that when we stand before God on Judgment Day, we do not need to fear. He will hold us and he will keep us and he will welcome us. God will not see our sin, but he will see Christ's wonderful righteousness. And so we need to build our life on him. Now, I think it's also important for us to remember that when Jesus says to build your house on the foundations, on him, it's, it's not that we obey, just obey his teaching. Sorry, it's not that... Let me start again. So it's important for us to remember that when Jesus says that the foundation of our house should be built on his teachings, it doesn't mean that we trust him by faith, but then live our lives by good works, maintaining our faith by good works. But that entrance into heaven is through faith in him, but that our life should be lived by grace-enabled good works. We don't live our lives through self-righteousness good works, thinking that we're okay and we're going to stay in heaven because we're obeying Christ. But that it's he and he who helps us live for him day by day. The Sermon on the Mount has lots of good lessons, doesn't it, that we've thought about for how to live our lives. And anybody can follow these rules. But what's important is the motivation that we have. What base do we come from? What's the purpose that we're doing? And whose glory are we seeking? If you remember from last week, we thought that good works are not the ticket into heaven, but they are the fruit that are produced in response to trusting in Christ and his work. The religious leaders were listening to Jesus and they were saying, well, hey, yeah, we, we keep the laws. We're building on our own righteousness. That's our foundation. Of course, their lives were then filled with self-righteousness. But if we live our lives trusting in ourselves and our own good works, then our house is going to wobble and, and crack and break down and be damaged even before the main storm comes. I wonder if you noticed from the parable that there are two men in the story, one wise, one foolish, and of course two houses. But Jesus doesn't tell us there's much difference between the two houses. Maybe there is. Both men desire to build a house. Both houses will be, will be similar in, in a, to a certain point. When Jesus calls us to trust in him for salvation, he doesn't mean that therefore it doesn't matter how you live your life. 
Okay, you're in now, you trusted me, therefore live how you want. That's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't want us to abandon our good works. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, we see that Jesus' interpretation of the law is actually to live a righteous life is far harder and demands a higher righteousness than we could ever live. Good works will characterize those who do them self-righteously and those who do them by faith. But I wonder, I wonder if there's no difference on the houses on the outside, maybe there's a difference in the houses on the inside. For example, if you walk down the street where I live and you pass all the houses, they're all fairly similar. Maybe they'll vary in the colour of the drain pipes or the colour of the, the window sills. But some houses do lend themselves to having a peek inside. And as you walk down the road, you'll see that there are differences on the inside. Near the top of the road, there's a house with a lovely mini grand piano in it. There's another house with a large widescreen TV with computer games always being played on it. There's another house with a big poster of Mission Rescue Summer Holiday Club on it. And as you look inside the windows, you can tell something about the families or the people who live there. Jesus in the Gospels often talking to the people about what's on the inside. People were talking about their righteousness on the outside and the Pharisees looked good. They're all spick and span, but inwardly, Jesus says that they're, they're dirty, they're filthy. That's why we need to change hearts. If you don't keep your house clean, you will begin to smell and get mouldy, like our kitchen. And paint begins to crack and the house looks ugly. When we live our lives trusting in our own good works to keep us going, we may look good on the outside. People may see the things that we do in church and be impressed. But on the inside, we won't be. We'll be dirty. We'll be full of pride, full of self-righteousness. We will judge others, as we thought about a few weeks ago. We will judge our standing before God by our works. Yes, we believe in the cross, of course, but, but we think that we're maintaining ourselves by things that we do. And we'll begin to worry. We'll begin to worry, are we good enough? Have we done enough? When we sin, we'll feel very, very bad and think that God won't forgive us. But we need to remember that we live our life through faith in him and by his help. So Christ has saved us, but Christ helps us. And we can give thanks that he has given us his spirit to help us live for him. He lives within us and he helps us to serve. He helps us to keep things like the Sermon on the Mount. I want a clean house. I feel good. And the house is clean. But if I employed a cleaner, then I can't take the credit. The cleaner has done it for me. And as a Christian, it's not that I don't do anything. It's all down to the Holy Spirit. I think it's a partnership. He helps us as we live. But as we build on him, he is there with us. And we put into practice the things that Christ has taught us. And so... Unlike the religious leaders, when we pray, we don't stand on street corners proud. We pray for his glory and for his praise. When we give our money 
We don't do it so other people see. We do it for his kingdom. We don't look down on other people. We forgive. We love our enemies. We seek him. We seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. As Jesus says in Matthew 6. God, God's glory and his kingdom are our goal. He is our motivation. And as we live for him, our house will stand. And in him, when we face Christ on that last day, our house will stand. Because we've built on Jesus. We've built with him, as well as him being our foundation. And so let's go and let's live for Christ, trusting in him for everything that we do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of Jesus. Thank you that he has given us such amazing truth. Truth that in one sense is hard for us to accept because it means we deny ourselves and we trust in him and what he has done for us. But great news in another sense because we know that we cannot save ourselves. That our good works are like filthy rags, as Isaiah says. But we thank you that Jesus has paid the price for sin, that he has borne the great storm of your wrath on the cross. And we thank you that through his resurrection we can be in relationship with you and that on that last day when we stand before you as our judge we can be confident because of Christ. So Father, please help us as we seek to live for you, as we seek to obey the law of Christ, that we would not do it in our own strength but that by your spirit you would help us and that we would do it for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.